Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 194. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 194 you're listening to. My guest today is Sarah Carter. Sarah is a BBC-trained mixing and mastering engineer based in Hampshire, UK. Sarah's journey is unlike anybody I've heard. I've interviewed a lot of people, and Sarah's journey is truly unique to her, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. Just kind of a, a glimpse of what kind of a journey she's had. She actually started out as, um, she was telling me, in the motor trade, dealing in parts and also being a mechanic, and then she decided to change careers, and she, in her 30s, got involved in audio, went to the SAE Institute in London, and eventually got hired at the BBC. Stayed there for a number of years, got to a point where she had burnt out a bit. Then she got into becoming a brewer. Yeah, she worked at a microbrew and just completely got out of audio. And then something happened and she just decided to jump back in. So she has jumped back in uh, feet first into the deep end of audio with all this background that she has in these different industries and also with this BBC training, and she's back out there in the world kicking ass, and I'm really excited to bring you this interview because uh, her experience and her perspective is just really different from most people that I've talked to. So yeah, Sarah Carter coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee. I'm going to get a little introspective on you here. Admittedly, I'm not the most well-read person on the planet. The great authors and their great works, I'm really not that familiar with, to be honest with you. Um, in fact, on top of that, I'm a very slow reader, especially when it comes to comparing myself to my wife, who will read one to two books a week, uh, whereas it will take me, um, you know, a month or two just to finish one book. Very slow reader. So this week, though, one author in one book came onto my radar uh, I'm talking about Ernest Hemingway, and I'm talking about For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I thought about it because I was watching Senator John McCain's funeral and listening to President Obama give his eulogy to McCain and quoting From Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, because apparently that was one of McCain's favorite books, favorite authors, I guess. Um, and regardless of your political leanings, left, right, center, that's really not the point here. The point here is the quote and to get you to kind of think about this quote and how it pertains to you. And it kind of affected me, so I thought I would share it with you. And the quote is this. It's a partial quote. It's not the full quote. Today is only one day in all days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that ever come can depend on what you do today. And the quote goes on, but it just got me thinking, you know, I could disappear tomorrow. You could be dead tomorrow. You could be diagnosed with something fatal tomorrow. And it just makes me think deeply about what I'm doing each day for myself, for my family, for my fellow citizens, you know, for the, for the planet, whatever. It just got me thinking 
how am I spending my time each day? And is that the best way to be spending my time? So think about that quote. Think of how it pertains to your life. I don't have any great, you know, directive to say, you know, you should go and do this, you know. But just to say, there's that quote. Think about it. Think how it pertains to you. Consider it. Okay, drink some more coffee. Let's pick the mood up a bit, huh? This week I've been doing some work in the yard. And one thing that has come out of that is I used to try to tackle way too much in one go, you know? This time I'm doing it a new way. I'm actually taking chunks of the yard that I want to deal with and getting outside and just dealing with those. And it's great because... It also kind of reflects back on my audio world because it gets me to tackle projects that I want to tackle in the audio world in small chunks. So I'm not so overwhelmed. So I don't know. I think there's something to that. How you deal with your yard and how you deal with your audio world. Well, if you have a yard. So if you don't, you know, it's a different story. But point is, you could take these little projects on. Get them done in a day and then move on to the next thing. And then you just, you know, it's a little bit kind of harking back to the inner Ernest Hemingway thing I was just talking about. What you do today. All right. Maybe not. Maybe not. Anyhow, that's what I've been doing. Hey, I want to remind you to stop on by our friends over at Universal Audio. They're at uaudio.com. They help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. We're deeply appreciative to them for their help. And, of course, you know, they make some great stuff. The Apollo series, the whole UAD thing. Of course, the classics like the 1176 and the LA-2A. All great stuff. So uh, check them out. They're at uaudio.com. Also want to remind you to stop on by our friends over at gearsluts.com because we, Working Class Audio, we sponsor the subform known as Audio Life. If you haven't seen that before, go on over there and check that out. If you're tired of talking about gear, and don't get me wrong, I do love gear, but... This is a place where you can talk about all the same things that we talk about here on Working Class Audio, but you can talk about it with your fellow gear sluts there at gearsluts.com. So check them out. That's it. Uh, gearsluts.com and the uh, Audio Life subform. Yeah. All right. That's it. The music's about to end, so we have to get to it. So let's bring on Sarah Carter here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for asking. We were connected courtesy of our mutual friend, Sylvia Massey. So I have to give a shout out to Sylvia, thanking her for that. Yeah. Saw a video of the two of you at BBC, Mm. looked you up and did a little research on you and was like, I got to have her on the show. (laughs) She'd be great. Let's just dive right in. I'm really curious about your journey. Your, Your bio is very fascinating and it takes a couple twists and turns. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about yourself and and how you got into this and how it all started. My journey has been quite convoluted, it's fair to say. And I think I I was quite a late entry into the world of audio. By the time I got into it sort of on a professional level, I was was in my early 30s. So I came into it a little late. So I'd basically, I I mean, I got into audio because uh, I played guitar. It's a similar story to a lot of engineers playing an instrument and then gravitating towards the the equipment and recording. I played guitar and all I wanted to do really was record myself 
playing to the backing tracks that you could get, you know, the guitar magazines you could buy and they'd come with a little CD and they'd have the backing track on the CD and they'd have the tutorial in the magazine and you, you practiced to the backing track. And I just wanted to get better at playing guitar. And so I, I was practicing away, but I, I started to get really interested in how it sounded from a listener's perspective. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into how to, how to go about doing that. Inevitably, there was probably some sort of uh, review in the guitar magazine for a four track. So I went out and bought a four track and that changed everything, really. I really got hooked into the, into the equipment and into the gear and into recording. I found it fascinating and really interesting. And slowly, that's the kind of direction I went into. So that all happened in, I guess, the early 90s. Hmm. You know, it was before any kind of digital recorder, you know, and before Pro Tools, certainly. And I just wanted to get better at guitar, but it kind of took a different turn. I would say so. Yeah. Unlike many engineers who get their start much earlier, you started in your 30s, you said, is that correct? Yeah, I was about 30. I think I was about 32 by the time I actually went to audio school. Like I say, the mid 90s, and I went very quickly from a four track cassette to, and you know, Behringer used to do the rip off of the, the Mackie 8 bus. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had, I had the Behringer version of that, and I had one outboard effects, multi effects processor, and I had a, a Fostex, the D160. It was a 16 track hard disk recorder. Oh, yeah. I had that little, little setup at home, and the only band I knew to record was my nephew's band. <laughs> And I actually paid, played bass for him for a while, which was a bit weird, anti-Sarah on bass. So, <laughs> you know, these young lads, they're all kind of, you know, 15 years old and there's 30-year-old Sarah on the bass. But um, it was great fun and I learned a lot during that process. But I was just, I was reading books and magazines, anything I could get my hands on to do with audio engineering. And I was slowly drifting away from any interest that was still remaining re regarding my um, my daytime job. At that time, what was your daytime job? I w left school at 16 and went straight into the motor trade. Uh, I went to work for car dealerships and oh. I went into the parts department. I trained as a mechanic. I took, well, part trained as a mechanic and went in and started working in garages and selling parts to out of one window to greasy mechanics and out of the other window to... Uh, to retail customers. So it was quite a mix. Looking back on it now, I think that went a long way towards my, you know, my people skills, if you like. I get on well with most people and got on particularly well in the recording studio and, and at the BBC. And, uh, you know, it just, it comes down to getting, getting on with people. And I think that being flung into that world from 16 and having to deal with those different types of people really set the playing field for me. I'm curious about the way in which someone in their 30s approaches a new thing such as audio as compared to say somebody in their teens or their 20s first of all there's a maturity level there and there's a a level of focus mm. that is possibly unlike those those earlier ages can you speak on that about how you approached audio as someone in their 30s mm. i guess you're right there, there was a, definitely a, a level of maturity i and I spoke earlier about getting more and more, drifting more and more away from my day job. And I'd started to think seriously about how I can make this a career. You know, I just knew that I wanted 
I wanted to do this as a day job because of the experience, the life experience I'd have had up until that point. I think I was able to to take advantage of any opportunity really that came my way. It it was difficult though because obviously in, when you're in your thirties, you're a certain ways a certain way down life. And I'd you know I had my own house, I'd bought a house, and I was uh, you know used to living to the salary that I was being paid at the time. So I was in quite a quandary how to make it happen, how to make the audio happen. It struck me at the time that to get into audio, I'd have to start at the bottom. And I know there's, it's not particularly high paying <laughs> um, industry to get into. I struggled with that for a while, but through a certain set of circumstances, I was able to take advantage of it. And being the age that I was, once I'd taken advantage of the, these circumstances and I found myself at audio school, and successfully finishing the school and then going out looking for a job, I think that my age uh, stood me in good stead, particularly for the BBC and for the, the, the very rigorous interview process that I had to go through. And I think I certainly had an advantage having had that life experience going in for that interview. Did you find that people treated you differently because you did have the, the experience and the age on your side as opposed to being, you know, say, a young pop coming up, uh, here you were, uh, an older, mature individual, and they probably saw you as an equal, you know, as well as a peer, in spite of not knowing what your uh, past experience was. That's probably a fair assumption because they would assume that I had been in the business longer than I had and would feel more assured or reassured that. They were in the hands of an experienced, you know, engineer and would relax a little bit more and make the job a little easier. But I don't know, not having, not being, you know, a young pup and doing audio and having to uh, start afresh like that. I don't quite know how would have, how people would have treated me if I'd been, been younger. The thing was though, whilst I was 32 or so, I actually only looked about 27 or so. I've been kind of blessed that way. And I look, you know, a little bit, well, quite a, a lot younger than I actually am. Uh -huh. So I don't think uh, age certainly never came, never came into it. Yeah. I think it was just that inner maturity that I was okay. able, that I was able to use and utilize to my advantage. No, and everybody, yeah. everybody else was none the wiser. Somebody who's in their early thirties, who's had the experience you had you probably have a better sense of how to read a person, how to read a room, how to understand people's, you know, the the little facial expressions they make. Just mm. that life experience where you kind of go, okay, I can handle this. A chap that I used to work with, he said to me that I came across as a very good listener because I had constant eye contact and I looked just deeply interested in whatever the person, or the person I was talking to, I just looked completely, deeply interested, and focused completely on their on their eyes. And he was a policeman, so he kind of knew how to read people. <laughs> so uh, that's a compliment yeah, coming from a policeman. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was another kind of sideline job that uh, that I had. So I left the motor trade. I moved down to the south of England to be able to go to the audio school, which was um, SAE. Uh, in London. I had, at that time, I managed to get myself two part-time jobs. 
one was in the morning and it was at a police station and the other was in the afternoon and it was at uh, a local college uh, and I was a, a music department technician. So I spent, it's probably uh, just over a year. It was during the, the whole duration, I think, of the college course working for the police on the front counter. So everybody, you know, general public wander in with all their various complaints and problems. And yeah, I was dealing with all sorts of interesting people. <laughs> I was a civilian, you know, I wasn't an actual police officer. We wore a uniform, so we looked like a police officer. Uh-huh. So again, I think that experience stood me in good stead as well when it comes to dealing with people. Yeah, you you probably have developed some pretty outstanding people skills over the years <laughs> in think... the various, you know, job capacities you've had. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You mentioned the rigorous BBC interview process. Can you tell me a bit about your getting into BBC and your job at the BBC? Yeah, sure. Getting into the BBC, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was uh, such a rigorous interview process. I think I had three or four interviews and they comprised of two sort of boards, you know, where you've got two, three or four people. You're sat on one side of the desk and then you've got three or four people sat at the other side of the desk. The interviews I'd had in the past were very straightforward, you know, and because I was so experienced in my previous work, it was, it was, it was, they were almost easy, but this, this was a different thing. And I, I wanted the job so much. I desperately wanted it. And I think I studied, I think I, I took a week to actually fill in the application form for the job. Because I wanted to understand the interview, the, the recruitment process, so I knew how to read the question properly and answer it in the best way possible to get, however they worked it out, whether they, you got points for the language you used or, you know, however they came up with the system to pick people to actually invite for interview. So then when mm-hmm. I got the interview, yeah, that was my focus for you know, for two or three weeks to just sit down and study interview techniques and how to come across well in interviews. And of course, my audio knowledge, brushing up on that, making sure that I was up to date with all the current requirements and broadcast and radio, because I hadn't really, it wasn't a job that I'd really looked at chasing until I saw the advert. It didn't enter my head. I thought I'd just try and get into a recording studio. And then this uh, advert popped up somehow in my inbox. I thought, yeah, this is going to be great because it's the BBC. It's going to be fantastic training and they're a great employer to work for. So I spent a long time preparing myself for the interviews. As I say, there were a couple of boards and there was um, uh, some sort of uh, assessment where They put you in an environment with other people and give you a scenario to talk through and to work through. And they sit in the corner of the room and they observe you and score you, how you interact in a group. So I had that to go through. And then there were practical exercises as well, which again, I amazed myself how well I did in that. One part of that practical exercise was just to listen to audio faults, listen to this piece of audio, what's wrong with it. So that was quite straightforward. But the other was a mock-up of of an actual radio, a section of a radio program, which involved tape machines. When I worked at the BBC, 
uh, they were still they were using quarter inch tape machines to play out pre-recorded interviews or anything really pre-recorded goals from the football match and you had to splice them out of the of the tape and put them onto a smaller reel and put them onto a tape machine ready to play out and so one of these these mock tests I was given a script I was given three reels of tape and three huge tape machines <laughs> I'd never operated a tape machine before in my life and oh wow uh, and it was all they were all you know threaded up and ready to go but uh, it involved putting headphones into the tape machine finding the part on the tape that corresponded to your script and then queuing them up and playing them out in the right order. I did that, I wouldn't say easily, but yeah, the, the heart was uh, pounding um, rather quickly uh, and uh, I was very pleased with my performance. It, the, one of the chaps said afterwards, have you done that before? I said, no. Oh, well, you did very well. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I might be in with a shot. I might, I might get this. The other aspect was they were actually looking for six people to fill slots as trainee studio managers. That's the term that the BBC used for sound engineer. And they wanted six people and there were 700 applied. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no pressure. No pressure. So when I remember now where, where I was when I got the phone call, and how I felt when they told me that I'd got the job. And so it was, it was one of the best achievements of my, of my life, was getting through that whole process and getting the job. I don't know how other people view the BBC, but I think to a lot of people, the BBC is, it's, it's characterized as one of the pinnacles of broadcast and audio production and video production. And it just, there seems, I mean, it's an institution. It's, mm. you know, when people say the BBC, it's kind of like uh, if you were to say, well, I went to work for, you know, Abbey Road, you know, yeah. there's, there's a, a quality that's associated with that. So when people see that, I'm sure BBC trained, for example, mm. in your bio, it's like, that stands out as like, wow, this person probably knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Whilst working there. It was a pretty tough schedule, particularly when we're talking about the the area that I or the group that I got into in the BBC, which was the live the live music group. Uh, so we were doing sessions in the studios at Maidervale, and we were also doing the festival circuit. So I was going to Glastonbury and Reading Festival, Tea in the Park Festival, and lots of other smallest festivals in the summer months going out and, uh, you know, recording bands there as well. So it got, in the summer, it got pretty gruelling. On top of that as well, I didn't live in London. I lived outside of London and I used to commute into London on a motorbike down the motorway in all weathers. So that that took its toll as well. But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic organisation to work for. Was the salary that you received, was it what you had expected? And how did that compare to being in the motor trade? Uh, the salary that we received was not huge. We were on a two-year training, sort of probation period. So we were trainees for two years, and then we would go back and do some more actual training at uh, Wood Norton in, in the uh, Midlands in, in England to become qualified. 
once we'd done that, then we took a pretty hefty step up in salary. And it was good. It was it, it was livable, definitely livable. And they, they looked after you really well with regard to the hours that you worked to make sure you didn't work too many hours in, in, in one hit. You got the breaks when you need them. This is all because, it, you know, the, the unions were all involved as well. Everybody was a member of the broadcast union. And so um, a lot of it is probably because of that, you know. But um, no, they t- they treated us very well and the salary was was good. And compared to the motor trade, yeah, it was better than the motor trade. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. So, but don't forget as well, I, when I was working in the motor trade, that was in the North of England and it was in the, in the Midlands. And now I've moved down to the South of England and you get paid a little bit more well, quite a bit more when you, the further South you go, the higher the salaries are and the more expensive the houses are as well. Geographically, the places you're talking about, I assume there's great cultural differences between the motor trade and, and working at the BBC. Yeah. When when I started to work at the BBC, it was like um, almost like going to another country for me. It, it was a completely different set of people to work with. Creative people. You know, I hadn't really worked with creative people like that before. You work with work with car mechanics and there's a certain level of conversation that you that you get to lots of uh, laughing and joking and lads talk uh, and that's fine uh, i did it for long enough so so i was perfectly fine with it but then starting at the bbc the conversations would take turns that i just found fascinating and as as i said earlier uh, when a friend of mine says i was a good listener i do that now and I, I think I've always done it. Is when you're in a, a room or you're in uh, with friends, I sit and listen. I just listen to the conversation and listen to people's points of view, and then I'll contribute with with my point of view. But I'd like to listen to people first before I make any kind of comment myself. I, I like to get a feel of of different people's perspectives, and then go when I went into the BBC. That it, it was like. My eyes were opened, you know, to different kind of all these different cultures because I worked in the world service for a while as part of my training. Mm-hmm. So um, I would work. I was working with people from all over the world. At that age, my eyes were just wide open. Things that I saw for the first time and heard for the first time. It was fantastic. It really was. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping. But if you really want to help our cause with them, Make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCA free ship. And that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Class Audio. So there it is. Check it out. RoswellProAudio.com. You're into this whole new world of audio, broadcast, and, uh, and, and, and video with some very smart people who take what they do very seriously mm. uh, with a whole new set of people to meet and conversations to have. I'm sure it was very mentally eye-opening yeah. Yeah. on so many levels. Mm. And 
when you have a regular job, you go to work and you you meet the same people day in, day out. You work with the, the same people. Uh, and at the BBC, I worked with different people every day. Yeah, I would, you know, I would work with them again. I might work with them on a weekly basis, but because we were booked on various different radio shows as we were required, I was working with a different set of people every day. And so that made made it really, really interesting. And uh, it was very difficult to get bored. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the challenges that you faced at BBC? The challenge I struggled with a little bit. I like to get to know my equipment and my studio inside out. Because I worked from studio to studio to studio at the BBC, none of those areas felt like mine, didn't feel like my space. You know, you walk into a studio for the first time, you don't quite know how it was left. And you're about, you know, you could be about to go live on air in the next half an hour or something or in the next hour. So you weren't quite sure whether something had been left in a strange, you know, funny position or, you know, that was going to trip you up further down the line. So I used to get in really early to my bookings and just check that everything was um, as it should be. Then I struggled with the commuting. That was quite difficult. The, the hours weren't regular. So you you were working. Sometimes you'd have to get in for uh, the breakfast show on Radio 2 and get in for 5.30. The next two days later, you might have a, a, a music session booking at, at um, Maida Vale and be on a 10-hour on a music session and leaving Maida Vale at 11 o'clock at night. The hours were quite difficult to, to manage sometimes. But um, when you, the people that you worked with kind of made it, made it all okay, really. In 2009, you decided to take a break from it and you left the BBC mm. uh, to explore being a brewer, yeah. of all things, mm. in a, a microbrewery. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about that decision leading up to that and, and tell me about being a microbrewer. Yeah. Well, I kind of, I guess I've kind of hinted, hinted to it, towards it a little bit already. And that was the sort of the the commuting, the workload, and then that sort of being thrown out of my comfort zone every so often. And I worked for the BBC for about six and a half years and it just started to take a toll. Uh, I was uh, tired and I, I just felt as though I needed a break. And I guess you could call it burnout in hindsight. I also felt the pressure and I got nervous because it became obvious to me that I was one of the people that were were in line of succession, if you like, to the senior sound engineers that were doing the headline festivals and and the big made avail sessions. And I was in that line. I could have been doing that, and and it frightened me. <laughs> the pressure of <laughs> I just thought I just didn't feel ready for it at that time, despite my maturity. I just didn't feel ready for it. And I think there was a bit of imposter syndrome going on as well. Uh, and I just felt the need to take a break and get out and explore other opportunities to kind of, it sounds a bit cliche, but to kind of find myself again, to find what it is that I want, that what it was that I wanted from life really. And yeah. so in the kind of a flip situation, audio engineering was my hobby, which I turned into my career in a flip situation, home brewing had been my hobby whilst I was oh. working at the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> and I flipped that into my career. And then 
ironically, I flipped it again <laughs> because now I've come back into audio whilst when I was brewing, I've been brewing, I was brewing for uh, six years, seven years. The latter part of my brewing career, I got back into audio. And so I flipped it again. And here I am now back in audio. Tell me about that period of time as far as being a brewer and what was the thing that flipped the switch to get you to go back to audio? I think it was a realization in brewing that again, like the motor trade, I'd done as much as I could do in, in that trade. And it was just a realization that I've always loved music and it's, it's, it's been a part of me for as long as I can remember. And something when something is that deep inside, it just, it will find its way out again. And I had a tough time after I left the BBC. My relationship with music had changed quite drastically from being an absolute music nut and uh, and loving all music, particularly sort of rock and indie music. The BBC basically wore me out and I didn't listen to music for probably about four years after leaving the BBC. Wow. Uh, yeah, I couldn't listen to it, to music without analysing everything, you know, How's the kick drum? Oh, the kick drum sounds a bit flat. Why, you know, um, the bass, oh, the bass is so loud in this record. You know, I couldn't listen to music for music and enjoy it as a piece of art. Um, I was just analysing everything. And so I just, I just took a break. I think what, what flipped, I, I did, like I said, I had a hard time after I left the BBC coming to terms with it and what could have been and had I made the right decision. And I think I, it was regret I was feeling. It hurt every time I thought about all my friends at the BBC and and what could have been, and 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 it hurt. And I actually went and and got some hypnotherapy, <laughs> mm-hmm. and had two or three sessions to explore this why it hurt, and I didn't want it to hurt anymore. And I had these sessions, and they, and they were great, and really got to the got to the bottom of it and worked on my feelings. Whenever I thought about the BBC and the wonderful times that I had, I wouldn't have this this regret feeling. It would just be it would just be memories of joy and and, and happiness. And it all sounds a bit crazy and out there, but it actually worked because not long after those sessions, I just started to want to mix music again. Out of the blue. Completely out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And went and purchased Studio One, Presona Studio One, and started to look at mixing music again. And what was really interesting was how the much the industry had changed in that in those uh, sort of seven years. The advancement of digital using computers for for audio. I at the BBC, everything I when I mixed music at the BBC, we it was large format consoles and outboard gear, and we uh, we mixed to um, Dash to the Sony Dash thirty three forty eight machines. And then we would flip, you know, zeroize the desk and mix straight to two track then to burn a CD to send to the program. Uh, the editing that I'd done on audio had all had been for speech radio. So I've done a lot of ed- editing with speech and creating packages for news programs and interviews uh, and things. But I'd never really done that much in, in the way of music editing. I certainly hadn't mixed anything, mixed music on the computer. So then I've come back into it in about 2014, it was, and I got this whole new set of tools. And look at all the outboard I could have, you know, I, I, all the plugins. <laughs> oh, my God, look at all these 1176s I could have. I was like a kid in a sweet shop. So, yeah, it was 
uh, it was great fun getting back into it again and having all this cool gadgets and plugins at my disposal. There's a percentage of, of audio pros that get their early training on large format consoles, tape machines, and pre-DAW style technology. Mm-hmm. And then they get into the DAWs and there's initially some hesitation for some and others dive right in. And it, you are of the latter. You dove right in, it mm. sounds like. Yeah. And we're very excited by these changes. Yes. Yeah. And it, because I was, you know, I'd been out of, out of the music industry. I hadn't seen it happening. So I'd, it's like I'd been dropped into that, into the future. <laughs> yeah. It was very exciting. And then, and then I had to kind of relearn mixing to almost to a certain extent, how best to utilize this, this equipment. The other big question was, could I still do it? I was relieved to find out that I could still, I could still hear these things. And, you know, my critical listening skills are still, are still up there. And, and they were a bit, they were a little bit rusty, but now, you know, after four years of, of mixing again, it, it came back really quickly, which I was really pleased about. I just found it all so exciting. Re-entering into the world of audio uh, after being in the brewing world, you could have made a decision. You actually, I'm sure you entertain the idea of possibly going back to the BBC. Yeah. Yeah, I did. But I took stock. And after going through that process with the hypnotherapy and doing some soul searching and knowing the job at the BBC, I would always have had to compromise. The job at the BBC, unless you were one of the very, very privileged few, was always going to be 50, 50%, 60% daytime radio, and the 40% remaining would be the good juicy stuff. I didn't want to do that. And it was that commuting side of things again. I, ju- I didn't want to put myself in that position. And I'd heard one or two things, you know, I've kept in touch with a lot of the of a lot of my ex-colleagues and it's changed from when I worked there and it's not the same place. So so it did briefly enter my head to go back there, but, um, but no, I, I decided against it really. Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. So you decided to uh, go the path of the freelance audio audio professional. Yeah, I think when I when I first sort of re-entered, and in, like I say, about two thousand, the end of two thousand fourteen, it was just fun to do as a hobby again. And then as the you know a couple of years went went by and started to think about the possibility of maybe doing it on the side to earn a little bit of extra pocket money doing this uh, the you know the mixing virtually uh, you know uh, over via email send files backwards and forwards and just earn a little bit of pocket money from it and then there were there were talks of redundancy at the brewery and mm. 
I thought about it and I was quite happy. If if I was to be one of the people that was made redundant, I was quite happy to to go with that. And I, vo- and I voiced that at the brewery. And it took probably 12 months, but it eventually came and they, they offered me a redundancy package. It's about a year ago, actually. And I, I took it and I took it with the sole purpose of taking the money, the redundancy money, putting it into my business or into a business because I didn't have a business at that point and really making a go of it. And the person I've got to thank most for being able to get into this, back into the music industry, well, and also initially getting into the music industry is my partner because with without her help, I just wouldn't have been able to do it. I needed to pay a mortgage, you know, I... Yeah. I needed to pay bills, but she just turned around and said, you know, you're passionate about this. I just want you to concentrate on it and make a go of it. Don't worry about the money. Just try, just work hard and the money will come. And I, so I'm in a very fortunate position for the second time because of her that I've been able to give this a go and not worry about any overheads. I don't have any bills to pay you know, so I'm very, very fortunate. I can give the same credit to my wife. Uh, when we have significant others uh, that give us that support, not just financial, but that emotional kind of recognition of this is important to you. You need to do it. I got your back. If if we mm. fall in hard times, mm. don't don't sweat it. Just but you got to work hard at it. Yeah, it really, really can help a person get established in 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 make a go of it here mm. and it's uh, this is a it's a great to hear mm. it's having someone believe in you they yeah. be- they believe in your ability and 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 in your drive and that goes a long way because i don't really have i don't really have a mentor as such at the bbc i had a mentor we were we were kind of allocated a mentor as part of our training and i worked with a with a great guy and we did these fantastic sort of training music sessions and he was an amazing engineer but at the moment uh at the moment i don't have a mentor and i've discovered that i work much better if if i'm being held accountable for my work so you know my partner expects expects results from me she expects to see me working hard and you know we talk about uh you know our days at work together of an evening but if uh yeah uh if i could find a mentor that would give me that kick up the backside and um, also validation on a, you know, on the same level. There's somebody that was on, that understood the business and someone I could go to and say, you know, I said this to a client the other day, was I right? Or have I just made a complete, you know, pig's ear of a bad situation? Then that would be really useful. And there was something, there was, uh, I can't remember the, the name of it now, is it? There's something going around on the uh, social media sites. So it's kind of stopped now. Is it? There's a. It's called "She Said So." I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it it seems to be a mentorship site for women in audio. She said so. I think, and it was basically you would you would uh, put in an application form to be a mentor or to have a mentor, um, and I I put in both. Because I think I can help people. I can help other women with with advice, business advice, and and uh, and getting a, getting along in the audio industry from a woman's perspective. Yeah. But I could also do with a little bit of that myself. So yeah, I haven't heard anything back yet. I think it's uh, I think it's still in the early stages of of 
development. It goes really without saying. I mean, I think we're all very aware that it's a very male-dominated world uh, in when it comes to audio. I would say that's all I've ever known, though. I, I've I worked in the motor trade, you know, yeah. and I worked in uh, brewing. <laughs> so I don't know why I've chosen that those routes, but uh, that 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 it's never it's not hindered me. And I mean, I've always been a tomboy anyway, right from a, from a very young age, and had the technical, mechanical, I really enjoy that that sort of work. So so the audio industry is no different to me in that respect. It's just another it's just another industry that's got more men in it than women. And I'm glad to say I haven't I haven't had any I've never had any issues with regard to favoritism or uh discrimination. Um I'm sure that there are women out there that have mm -hmm. um but I'm 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 very happy to say that I'm not one of them. That's refreshing to hear. It seems like each time you do something, there's kind of a an intensity and a focus to to you doing it. You know, prior to your BBC position coming up, you went to SAE and studied. Mm -hmm. When you got back into audio and you found yourself right there in front of uh, this new technology that you really hadn't kept up with, were there any things that you did to prepare yourself for that or to train mm. yourself to like get up to speed quickly? Yeah, I, I've, I'm a big believer in education and I, I, I love to learn and you're exactly right. I do have this, when I put my mind to something, I have this laser focus and I want to absorb everything I possibly can and learn as much as I possibly can about it. There are a few, a couple of uh, internet websites that uh, I I found useful. Mm -hmm. um, I think when I first first got back into it in 2014, it was the the recording revolution and uh, the Graham Graham Cochran, Graham Cochran yeah, and yeah. Joe Gilder. <laughs> it was their kind of dueling mixers thing. Yeah, uh, that got me. Because I got back into it, of course, and then I needed these multitracks. Where am I going to get multitracks from? You know, where? How do? How can I learn to mix? I don't record bands, so where am I going to get multitracks from? And of course, you you Google it, and these things uh, these things come up. And uh, so I did the Julie mixes thing for a while, and I found that really useful to to watch uh, to watch people work and uh, to take on board their techniques and their workflow. Uh, so I did Julie mixes for a while, and then I also did uh, Warren Hewitt's "Produce Like a Pro," and uh, he has another thing called Pro Mix Academy, and he releases yep. these kind of single courses with uh, top, you know, top mixing engineers. And I've I've uh, purchased a few of those, and I think that's what's been working best for me of late has been watching other engineers work. Again, we talked about it at the beginning of the uh, interview, and I'm a good listener, and I like to I like to watch people work and then take away things that I I know I'll find useful and put them into my workflow. So that's what works really well for me at the moment is watching other mixers work, particularly successful mixers. Yeah, I've I've purchased several courses, and I've I joined the Mix with the Masters. I joined their website, and then I went on. The one of their seminars, which is how I met Sylvia. Excellent, yeah, and I, I have done both as well. Mm -hmm. And when did you get do the mix with the masters seminar with Sylvia? It was January. Oh, recent. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just ah. it was January. The mix with the masters is a is a new a new thing for me. Pure mix is the other one that I that I go to with uh, Fab Fab Dupont. All the usual suspects, huh? friends of mine, people I know. I will definitely put links in the show notes mm. uh, regarding these programs. If uh, those of you who are listening are are interested, I'm sure you've heard of every single one of these things that we're <laughs> discussing because they're quite popular. Starting with your days in the motor trade and actually going all the way through to where we're at today, what has been your approach with money, uh, knowing that the the world of audio doesn't always pay the best, mm -hmm. depending on where you're at? Um, what What's your thoughts? What are your philosophies and approach to money and survival? These days, I'm really, I'm quite careful and only purchase something when I've actually got the cash to do it. I was able to set up and get myself set up for today's business uh, using uh, inheritance. Uh, my father passed away about three years ago. And uh, so I've used a little bit of the, well, a good portion of the inheritance, to be honest, setting myself up with uh, with good a good computer and uh, all the equipment that I use today. But yeah, I've, I've been down that road. I've owed money and it's not fun. It causes arguments and I'm not going down that road again. And you're right that there's not a lot of money in the audio industry unless you're, you know, high up there. And there wasn't a lot of money in the motor trade or brewing. So I've not known any different. But through one reason or another, I've I've owed money, I've paid it off, and I'm, you know, I'm much the wiser for it. And I like the feeling of security and not owing money to anybody. And so I, I've got to that age now where where I'm being extra careful, really, because, you know, I'm I'm fifty I'm fifty one now. I should be fifty two at the end of the year. And I I'm really conscious of my retirement and having enough money to live when I retire. And because of the fragmented jobs that I've had, I have no real pension to speak of. But BBC, we got a, BBC is a good pension, so I've got a little bit there. But I was only there for six and a half years, so that's not going to pay me an awful lot. And similarly for the police, but that you know, being in the motor trade, you weren't given pensions. You had to sort yourself out and get a your own pension. And I was a bit. I was. I, you're young. You don't think about it, do you? And I, I didn't do it. And and so now I'm really focused on that, and I'm very driven to try and make this uh, this new business of mine succeed. And uh, I'm looking at other uh, income streams um, to go into. Tell me about that. Tell me, what are you doing today to prepare yourself for the future? If you're sticking in audio, what's your going to be your approach here? What's the plan? The plan is to get up up and running. Well, the business is, is coming up to a year old. Um, and I'm really pleased with how it started off. I've I've had some great clients. I've got repeat clients, and I'm really pleased with it. And the plan is to really focus in on the business side of things and promote myself and promote the business uh, any which way I can. And I'm, I'm really trying to um, accelerate the business. I haven't got the time really to let it just kind of naturally, just slowly make my way there. I really need to. Uh, have it moving in the right direction pretty quickly, and so looking at every possible way to get my to get my name out there, 
to get my brand out there, if you like. So I plan in the next few months to perhaps get some ebooks written and to get some blogs, blog posts written for my website. Mm-hmm. I want to help people wherever I can. You know, I've kind of had a, an interesting journey through the music industry and I've, I've had to learn twice. <laughs> um, so I think I can help people. And certainly I get asked for help from, from clients uh, all the time. Uh, I get emails from people. I offer a free, uh, on my website, I offer free mix consultations and free mastering samples. And so off the back of those, I get asked all sorts of advice. And the amount, amount of times I've been asked, have you ever thought about teaching? Have you ever thought about doing tutorials? That I think perhaps maybe I should think about that. So I'd like to do something on YouTube as well. So I'm looking into that, but I don't want it to be just another tutorial channel. I want it to be a bit different somehow. So I'm still working on that. But uh, yeah, there's no kind of fixed plan at the moment. I'm still keeping things very fluid because I want to go where the market takes me. I'm still kind of finding my way through. But uh, but yeah, I'm very driven to finding what's going to work for me and as quickly as possible, really. Well, I mean, gosh, you have such a wealth of experience that especially everything you learned at the BBC... Mm. And now your new experiences, uh, I can uh, see that you have a lot to offer to those who are curious to learn. Oh, good. Thank you. One thing I'm curious about is your observations of similarities or things that you found in common between the motor trade, the brewing world, and the audio world. Is there anything that connects those in any way? It's a really good question. The only thing I can think of are the probably doesn't strictly answer your question is to be successful in any of those worlds has taken people skills, has taken an understanding of the client, of the customer, understanding their needs. Uh, And so it's just being able to work well with people to get the best out of people. I mean, when I was in the, the, the highest position I got to in the motor trade, I was actually managing the department. So I had, I had people that, that I was mentoring and managing. So yeah, it's, Learning how to get the best out of people, I think, has been has been the link. So, but that's that's an interesting question. I'll probably ponder that more <laughs> when we're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and come there's... up with a really great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get this email in like six months. You'd be like, yeah. I figured it out. Here's the common denominator amongst these three areas. Yeah, yeah. Where can people find out more about you online? Where can they find you online? Um, yeah, they can find me at uh, musicmixpro.co.uk. So that's my website. And yeah, I'm across all uh, social media platforms as well. My favorite one at the moment is Instagram. Um, I think that's uh, that's a really great platform. I've enjoyed the interactions I've had on that more than any other. So Instagram is my platform of choice. And I also see you're on Soundbetter. Yeah, that's that's interesting actually. Um I the I've had probably the best clients from Soundbetter. I've not had many. I've not had many and you have to be kind of really quick um and proactive to get because uh, the jobs get snapped up really quickly. But I've had people where I've had people approach me on Soundbetter and I they have been the best clients that I've worked with. Very talented, very dedicated and very passionate about the music. So it's worth uh, uh, anyone out there that hasn't had a look at that should go and have a look and see if they think it's 
it's right for them. You can join. You don't have to pay anything. You can just put a free profile up. Uh, but if you want to go a step further, you can you can pay a monthly fee and you kind of get higher up in their search rankings and you get first shot at the jobs board. Uh, it's worth looking at if people are wondering how to kind of get a bit of extra uh, income, a few more clients. Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You have a very fascinating background and it's it's been really cool to hear about your journey and the path that you've taken and the things you've learned along the way. It's it's incredible. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun talking to you because I'm a fan of the podcast anyway. So I couldn't quite believe it when you got in touch and you wanted to hear my story. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> see, from my perspective, when I reach out and somebody is like, oh my gosh, I'm a fan of the show. Yes, I'll be on. I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> cool. It's exciting when I hear that, but it's also great relief too. You're like, okay, great. They know what the show is about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you again. Pleasure to have you on and uh, thank you for uh, being here with me today. Oh, thank you. I've had, uh, I've had fun. Me too. <laughs> Excellent. Well, cheers. Talk thank to you, you later. Cheers. Thanks. Sarah Carter here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. want to remind you to stop on by workingclassaudio.com and pay a visit to some of our sponsors, including Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, The License Lab, and Gearsluts.com. They, of course, help make the podcast possible. And also want to thank our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their contributions. And thank you for listening week after week and spreading the word. And until next time, my friends, as usual... Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>